listener production. And I call the member for Adelaide. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, I seek your indulgence to make a valedictory speech to the parliament. The member for Adelaide may proceed. Kate Ellis was my boss for almost four years and I was completely enamoured by her. Working at Parliament House in Canberra is intimidating for anyone. Prime Minister, resume his seat. The members for Scallon and Fadden will leave under 94A. Particularly for a young person like me. But the thing is, Kate Ellis was still a young person herself. When she was elected, Kate was the youngest woman ever to sit in the House of Representatives at just 27, and she became the youngest minister to serve in a federal government at just 30 years old. We on this side of the house will continue to deliver for regional universities, for regional students and for our higher education sector. She spent 15 years in the parliament and has now written a book called Sex, Lies and Question Time. In it, Kate shares the sexist reality that women politicians occupy. You can see that some of these things that I used to just accept were just part of the job are really not okay and what could be done to change it. My name is Jamila Rizvi, and later I'll be joined by Tate McGregor to bring you The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat, and listen to. But now, here is my interview with Kate Ellis, complete with ever so slightly dodgy at-home audio, sorry, and Kate's cavoodles dancing in the background. Kate, we worked together for several years, a long time ago. Am I the best employee you've ever had? (laughs) Yes, you were an absolutely wonderful employee um, and a huge talent and someone that it's lovely to know. And it's so nice to see all the amazing things that you've gone on to do since. Oh, we'll have to cut that, but that's lovely. But (laughs) I'm interested by your response straight away, right? Because one of the things I know about you, knowing you well, is that you don't like talking about yourself. That is true. Well, it's not that I don't like talking about myself. I just think that there's other much more interesting things to talk about. There's enough people in the world that um, love to talk about nothing but themselves. I don't think we need to add to those numbers. Well, we're still going to give it a red hot go. So I'm going to ask you to start by telling me a little bit about your childhood because you grew up in Adelaide Well, sort of. I grew up mainly, most of my childhood was in Manham, which is a small South Australian country town up on the River Murray. It was just the best place in the world to grow up because um, there's about 2,000 people that live in Manham, um, which maybe it was just the style of parenting at the time or maybe it was the location, but we had huge amounts of freedom because you could get on your bikes and go off for the day, whether you were fishing or building cubbies or catching lizards or climbing onto the boats of the unsuspecting people who thought it was safe to come up from the city and leave their boats tied up um, in Manham. And your parents were pretty relaxed because they knew that everybody knows everybody. So if you got up to anything too bad, then they'd find out about it. And it was great. So um, I spent most of my childhood there and then we moved to Adelaide My mother in particular thought it was important that we moved to Adelaide when my brother and I got to high school age. And Adelaide's been great too. Tell me about what you were like at high school. If we use those horrible high school stereotypes, which box do we put you in? (laughs) 
I was pretty bad. Um, it was really <laughs> funny to me because when I first got elected, one of the criticisms that my political opponents used to make is like, oh, here comes little Miss Head Prefect, which I found hilarious because I was pretty naughty and pretty rebellious when I was in high school. And, you know, I spent a lot of time smoking behind the gym, smoking in, inside the gym on one particular occasion, which didn't work out very well. Um, just a note to everyone, if ever you need to quickly extinguish a cigarette, do not put it in the sanitary disposal unit oh, <laughs> because, one, you'll get busted and, two, it will create even greater problems. You know, I was pretty experimental, like many teenagers probably thought that I knew much more than I did. I mean, the truth is that I'm pretty straightforward and boring, but during those adolescent years I desperately wanted to be different and creative and arty. So, you know, I tried to dye my hair black and blue and red and went through a try-hard goth period or then kind of adopted all these all these different sort of subsets of adolescence. I gave them all a whirl and tried to um, fit into those boxes, but it turns out I'm actually just a pretty straightforward person, so none of those really lasted. Tell me when you first became aware of politics, not when you necessarily became interested, but when did kind of politics first enter your universe? There's probably a couple of times. So my dad worked in a supermarket and there were some really big debates over shop trading hours, which I guess exposed me a bit to the fact that, you know, Parliament makes laws which affect people's lives and it was going to affect my father's life and his ability to spend time with us on weekends. So I was pretty young when that happened, but I really remember being at high school and, you know, it's that kind of age where a lot of people start getting a bit politicised. And I had, in my opinion, the great benefit of being a teenager when Paul Keating was um, Prime Minister and was starting really big debates, you know, debates about reconciliation, debates about Australia's place in the world and becoming a republic and kind of those big issues about who we are and who we want to be. And I was all there for it, absolutely loved it. And so I guess that really exposed me to the fact that you know, we make decisions about who we are as a country and those decisions are pretty big and they matter. So I got that in high school and I might not have got the party political side of things, but I, I certainly realised the importance of politics in shaping who we are. So if we zoom forward a little bit, tell me about who you were and what you were doing in the months and years before you had the opportunity to seek pre-selection for the Labor Party. So there aren't that many years in between, actually. Um, so <laughs> as it turned out, I went on to university, went to Flinders Uni when I finished high school. Much to my mother's disgust at the time, managed to prolong that experience by several years. But basically when I left uni um, to go and work on the federal election campaign, the 2001 election, and then work for some state candidates and MPs and then work with the state government. Um, so that was only a couple of years. Um, you know, that was 2001 that I went to work on that campaign and three years later I was the candidate in the seat. So it was pretty quick. There wasn't a huge gap between school, uni and um, being a member of parliament myself. How did that first conversation about you running for parliament go 
How does that happen? Well, mine is probably a pretty unusual story. And because I know a lot of people work really hard for a lot of years to fight for their pre-selection. And I was incredibly lucky that that wasn't my experience. In fact, it was sort of out of the blue to me that in the lead up to the 2004 election, the candidate who had run at the previous election announced that he wasn't going to run again. And so people were looking for who was going to be our candidate. To make the story weirder, I was backpacking around Europe at the time and I started getting a couple of text messages from people saying, hey, you should come back and run as our candidate for Adelaide. And I remember the first time I got one, I just kind of looked at it and laughed and put it down and went back to my pint of Guinness in the Dublin pub that I was sitting in. But then I had a few more conversations It was probably only that I was in that mindset. When you do go travelling and you see how big the world is and how huge possibilities are and, you know, how wonderful things can be, that you have that kind of bravery. So I decided to come home from Europe and said to the people who had thought that I'd make a good candidate, yes, I'd love to take the opportunity I was lucky to be pre-selected and this was all just a few months before the election. So it was pretty quick. You know, this was the 2004 election. It was a very bad election for my side of politics. So I don't think anyone really thought that I was going to win. But election night, we started getting the results in and seeing how badly we'd done across the country and how many seats we'd lost and how many careers had been ended And then we started getting results in for the seat of Adelaide and I was like, oh, crikey, I I think I'm about to get elected. And I was a bit rabbit in the headlights. I was like, this is um, pretty extraordinary. But there I was. And so, yeah, I turned 27 during the campaign and um, was pretty soon packing my bags for Canberra. That is a huge achievement and such a story of going from, you know, having your backpack packed in Europe to packing your bags to go to the nation's parliament. So, You've been elected, you're 27 years old, you're idealistic and clever, but as you say, there's a little bit of like, well, this is new uh, (laughs) to what you're about to do. Was the workplace you walked into what you expected? It was a pretty rough environment to come into because one of the things that I think is the hardest in politics, whatever side of politics you're on, is going through leadership changes. And You know, it's really divisive, friends turn against friends, people are voting in different ways. And when you're just elected and that's what you walk into, um, it's not an environment where people have the time or the inclination to make sure that everyone's okay or to put out the welcome mat or to set up any sort of mentoring or support systems for new members. It's here you are, you're in what's about to become an internal bloodbath and sink or swim and see how you go. So will the Prime Minister live up to this promise and restore the $30 billion in school funding that he's already cut and match Labor's investment for your child, our future, schools plan, dollar for dollar? Were you the subject of sexism, do you think? You know, when you look back, there is no doubt that women are treated differently in Parliament and certainly were back then. And I think that was particularly true for young women. It wasn't long before I had senior members who liked calling me Katie rather than Kate when they were trying to um, kind of, you know, suggest that perhaps 
I had a lot to learn from them or, um, you know, there was just kind of this atmosphere that I think women in general have to work harder to come to the same starting line. And I think that's particularly true if you're a completely unproven, unknown 27-year-old. You know, I think that people have very low expectations of you and you have to work really hard to establish yourself. You've written a book called Sex, Lies and Question Time. Tell me about who you interviewed for the book and why. After I'd left Parliament for a while, I started to realise how out of step it was with the way that the rest of modern Australia works. I reflected on some of my experiences as a woman in politics and I was kind of interested to, one, speak to other women and see whether that was pretty standard um, and that if every woman felt like they'd been treated differently or had unfair treatment based on their gender. Um, So partly it was curiosity on my part. Um, But the other part was the further away I got from Parliament and from my time there, the more I realised how important it was, not just to the people that work within Parliament House, but to the country, that we actually have a good, safe workplace with a good culture. I decided to speak to other women and I kind of made the decision that I needed it to be women across the board. So, you know, obviously I was delighted to talk to Julia Gillard and Penny Wong and Jenny Macklin and Tanya Plibersek and Linda Burney and others from my side of politics. But it was great to also speak to Julie Bishop and Karen Andrews and Susan Lee and, you know, leading senior Liberal women. And um, then I thought, well, if I'm really going to have a look at across the political spectrum, then I need to make sure the minor parties are included, so the Greens and the Democrats. And then I had this moment where I just thought, okay, if we're all in on this, let's flick Pauline Hanson a little email and see if she wants to have a chat about her experiences. And she was actually the first person that came back and said, yes, I'd love to have a chat. Yeah. So you've chatted to all these women across the political spectrum. What sort of stories did they have to tell about the sexism that they'd encountered? Well, I think what was really interesting and is really telling given where we are now and what we've seen in the last year in particular, every woman I spoke to, regardless of her political background, regardless of her age, had a story to tell about how they'd been treated differently in politics because they're a woman and how they'd seen a culture of disrespect for women within the culture of Parliament House. So those experiences differed hugely. Some of them, you know, were probably at the more minor end where it might be, you know, a focus on their physical appearance or on their clothing or on casual sexism or just being treated differently. Um, And some of them were at the other end, the really major end of the spectrum of, you know, sexualized threats of violence, rape threats, public humiliation and slut-shaming, sexual allegations in the parliament. There are a lot of people who had stories of the way that their decisions around motherhood had been weaponized and used against them in their political careers. So the stories were varied and different, different people, different experiences, but everyone had at least one and most of them had many. How 
did the treatment of Julia Gillard by the media differ Mm -hmm. from her prime ministerial predecessors? And I suppose what I'm trying to get to with this question is what role people outside the parliament have to play when it comes to sexism against women politicians? I mean, Julia in her own book said that her first day as Prime Minister, the media coverage was completely dominated by the choice of jacket that she chose to wear that day. That sounds pretty harmless, but it does mean that none of the messages that she was trying to get out about what she planned to do was successfully communicated to the Australian people. With Julia, the focus on her gender was relentless, whether that's in the community, in the parliament or in the media. And actually, when I spoke to her, I asked her the question, if you could change one of the three, what would have the biggest impact? And she said, you have to change the media. If the media actually not just didn't publish gendered analysis or opinion, but also called out the MPs who were behaving badly, that would bring about the biggest change. So with all of that, that's it from me. I finish by simply saying thank you and goodbye. What made you decide to step away from politics, recognising that 15 years in a job's a really long time? (laughs) It's 15 years, but it's also... You know, my life and my priorities had changed as well. I had 15 years in a marginal seat and I don't know if all members of the general public properly understand what that consists of because people see that we go to parliament however many weeks a year, but what people probably don't see as much is that if you're in a marginal seat, there is Every night there's a community forum or an awards presentation or a neighbourhood watch meeting. You know, every weekend there are street corner meetings, there's functions. It is a relentless job and it was an amazing privilege that I loved. But by the time I left, I had two small children. Um, You know, I'd married during the time I was in Parliament and it was basically I just decided that I couldn't dedicate one at least 20 weeks of the year to being away from home and then every other weekend that I was back to other people's needs and priorities at the expense of my own and my family's. You are now mum to two little boys, your stepmother of two, and you have two dogs who you are also the mother of, clearly. What's been the most surprising part of motherhood in all its forms? I think it's just the way it's constantly changing. So I'm in a bit of a state of grief about that. My eldest started school this year and I was seriously rattled by that. I felt like I was losing my child and I know how unreasonable that sounds, but um, someone gave me some really good advice where they said that parenting is just basically learning how and when to let go at different times throughout their life and praying that you've equipped them with everything they need to be able to cope on their own until then. I I didn't think I'd be such a clingy mum, but I am. It sounds like you're also a really happy mum and it's so good to hear you so happy in what you're doing at the moment. Thanks for being on the weekend briefing, Kate. Thank you so much for having me, Jamila. Kate Ellis's book is Sex, Lies and Question Time and it's available at all the good bookstores and online right now. Don't go away. Take McGregor and The Weekend List are coming right up. 
This is The Weekend List and I'm joined by Tate McGregor who has all the recommendations for what you're going to get up to this weekend. Tate, what have you been watching? I just watched Bo Burnham's special on Netflix. It's called Bo Burnham Inside and it is written, directed, filmed, edited by and starring Bo Burnham. It's a one-stop shop and it's essentially his answer to doing a stand-up comedy special in lockdown. So it's all shot in his home through the pandemic without a crew, without an audience, but it is a comedy special released on Netflix and features a variety of sketches and some really well-worded songs that if you listen three times over, you're still discovering more. I do give a warning though that if you're in lockdown like I am, it can be kind of hard to watch. It does battle with anxiety and that increasing feeling that you get through staying in one space. So trek carefully, but it's intensely creative and a very fun... It it has a laugh throughout it. That's what I'll say. Sorry that I look like a mess. Ah. I put the haircut, but it got rescheduled. Here comes the content. It's a beautiful day to stay inside. The other night I cooked up cannelloni of silver beet with burnt butter and parmesan. And I have never been so impressed with myself. I have never been so impressed with myself. It's a good food recipe. You can get it just by doing a quick Google online. You are going to need a piping bag. You are going to need a food processor. They're the two big requirements. But what is lockdown for if not to order expensive goods online and have them delivered to your house so you have a package to open. So I suggest you get on that very quickly and you eat these delicious tubes of melty, buttery, cheesy goodness. If you want to sing along, I've got some music to get your ears across. Her name's Claire Rosencrantz. If you've opened up TikTok, you'll have definitely come across her song Backyard Boy. She's just put out her second EP. It's called Six in a Billion. It's a play off her lead single called Boy in a Billion, but it's six songs of the billions that she wants to release. It's an alternative blues pop. So if you like Olivia Rodrigo meets Benny meets Still Woozy, then this is for you, Claire Rosencrantz, and her EP Six in a Billion. from us at the weekend briefing today everyone if you'd like to be part of the weekend briefing then please send us your recommendations you can find us on all the social medias and if you never want to miss an episode of the weekend briefing or the weekday briefing then you need to subscribe make sure you follow us in the listener app or wherever you listen to your podcasts while you're there why not leave us a rating and a review We will be back on Monday morning, bright and early, with Annika and Tom. Listener.